This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for June 24th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. This week we have a special issue on climate change. As part of that, we're gonna talk about biofuels for airplanes and a segment on the potential and limits of nature-based solutions for climate change. Also this week, the latest in our book series. These are books about science, food, and agriculture. And this one definitely has a climate change tinge as well. Host Angela Saini talks with Jessica Hernandez about her book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. But first, producer Megan Cantwell talks with reporter Bob Service about biofuels for aviation. When you purchase a ticket for a flight, you might have had the option to offset your carbon emissions. Well, in the future, there might not be a need to. There is a push right now to use jet fuels made from farm and food waste instead of petroleum. This week, staff writer Robert Service brings us a story about sustainable aviation fuel as part of science's special issue on climate change. Thanks so much for joining me, Bob. You're welcome. In years past, there was a pretty big push to use biofuels in cars. Is this something that actually succeeded? Are there cars running on biofuels today? Well, there's not many that run completely on biofuels. Our gasoline is blended with ethanol that is made in the United States. It's mostly made from corn. In other countries like Brazil, it's made from sugarcane. For gasoline for cars and, and diesel and whatnot, there are limits to how much can be mixed in for most cars. The grand vision for biofuels 15 years ago was really to, over time, change the industry over from running on food materials and taking a lot of land and using it for fuel production, but instead to do it from agricultural waste and other kind of waste products. And that's the piece of the vision that never really came to fruition for vehicles, because even though the technology works, it just never financially was able to compete with other sources of vehicle fuels. And so that industry has largely withered away. The focus of your story isn't about fuel for cars, but efforts to create sustainable aviation fuels or SAFs. Are airplanes a major emitter of greenhouse gases? 
Airplanes are a major emitter. They account for about 3% of all greenhouse gases emitted worldwide. So it's one of the most carbon intensive things we do as humans is flying. And you can sort of think about why that is. It just takes a lot of energy to lift stuff up off the ground. In terms of SAFs, do these fuels emit less greenhouse gases than petroleum-based jet fuel that we're mainly using right now? The idea behind SAFs is not so much that when they burn, they emit less, because essentially the molecules are the same sorts of molecules as in jet fuel. However, what's different is that they're made from plant material as the starting material. So again, going back to agricultural waste or forest waste, because it started out as a plant material, as the plants grow, they take carbon dioxide out of the air. Then when they eventually get turned into fuel molecules and then burned as fuel, it just re-releases that carbon back into the air. It can't be a perfect circular economy that way, but they have the potential anyway to reduce the carbon footprint of aviation by, say, 80-85% in the near term. The long-term vision is for the industry to go to a net zero carbon footprint seems like there's pretty good movement, not just in the U.S., but also outside the U.S. to kind of push to create these SAFs. And one of the things you mentioned in your story was that the U.S. Department of Energy's Biotechnologies Office offered a pretty decent amount of money for projects to develop these technologies. What are the different avenues people are pursuing with this funding? There are a number of ways to produce SAFs, starting from municipal garbage or, say, agricultural waste or forest waste, and then going through a process of converting those into gases first and then liquids, but eventually upgrading those into the SAFs. There are already seven pathways that have been approved, but the DOE and other agencies are trying to develop as many as they can and make them economical to fund all kinds of research ideas to improve the economics of it in order to give the aviation industry a lot of different sources. The idea is that I personally live in the Pacific Northwest. We have a lot of forest land around here. In this region, it might make most sense to use forest waste and convert that into SAFs. But if you're somewhere else, maybe municipal garbage makes the most sense. Or if you're somewhere else, maybe corn stalks make the most sense. So whatever is cheapest locally would then become the feedstock for the fuel of that region. That's the hope anyway. And that will hopefully drive the prices of the whole industry down. Could you walk through one of the processes from this source material, this waste to jet fuel? How does it actually get made? Let me tell you about a researcher who recently was at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and his process. And so his name is Derek Vardong and his colleagues at NREL have been working on a process to convert what they call wet waste, which are sort of, think of your compost from your food waste or something like that. So they start with molecules that come from food waste, and these are called volatile fatty acids. The volatile fatty acids are this yellowish liquid that are really foul smelling. So they start with these volatile fatty acids that come from food waste, and they put it into a reactor that has a heat source at the top that vaporizes the liquid, this yellowish liquid, and it turns it into a gas. And that gas then flows across 
a catalyst. These are white pellets made from zirconium oxide. The catalyst cause pairs of the VFAs to knit together into longer chains called ketones. And those are then cooled down. And then the ketones are then piped into a second reactor with another set of catalysts. And those connect ketones together and they rip off oxygen molecules. And basically they make kerosene, which is the mix of hydrocarbons that make jet fuel. It seems like there are so many steps to go from waste material to actual jet fuel. Is this entire process really energy intensive? The whole chemical industry is built on working with liquids and gases, piping things around. I mean, we've all seen these pictures of giant chemical plants with all these tubes and pipes and reactors and chambers and everything. That's all just liquid and gas handling stuff. The chemical industry is brilliant at doing that. They've been doing it for over a century. It's not very good at handling solid materials. So first handle all those solids and then convert them into liquids and gases just takes extra steps. And so that's one of the reasons why it's energy intensive, but it's also costly. And so they, the industry has to figure out ways of renewing, reworking itself to work with different starting materials very quickly in order to scale this up fast. You mentioned a lot of different sources for this, and of course, it depends by region what makes the most sense. Are there a lot of mechanisms already in place to collect this biomass? Well, see, this is going to be one of the big challenges, I should say, in getting this industry up and off the ground. As you scale things up, basically go from a demonstration plant to a full-scale commercial facility or something like that, you can produce a lot more, which makes the economics of it typically better, which is great. But then you run into different kinds of challenges. For example, let's say you have a commercial facility to produce SAFs in the Midwest where there's lots of corn that's grown. So there's lots of, say, corn stalks, corn stover, and other agricultural material left over from farming. Okay, great. Well, you can use that. Well, now that means you have to work with all the farmers in the region that they not only harvest and store the corn kernels and whatever grains they're making, now they have to create a whole new infrastructure for collecting corn stalks, say, and then storing them for 11 months of the year where they're not harvesting them to feed the biorefinery or something like that. So as this industry scales up, they have to go through all these challenges of just doing that on a much larger scale and, and therefore involving a lot more players. And in terms of the processing, are these facilities that would need to be built from the ground up or is there existing infrastructure that could be built upon to process this waste? There is a subset within the industry that is advocating a set of pre-processing facilities by region. So let's say you're harvesting corn stalks or something from the Midwest, you might have smaller regional facilities that can process that starting material to make something that would be an intermediate little pellets or ground up stuff that a whole bunch of different centralized plants, which could then take from a number of different sources and turn into the precursors for jet fuel for SAFs. And then those could pass it on to current fuel refineries that do some of the steps. And so maybe you could take advantage of some of the current gasoline fuel refineries that turn oil into jet fuel. Right now, is the scale up the big problem or are researchers still also working on creating new pathways from different sources of waste? Yes, to all of the above. 
There is still a lot of science going on in terms of trying to come up with new processes for new starting materials, new feedstocks that would enter that chain. But there are already several lines, seven of them, that are approved. So if you start with ethanol, for example, let's say you have ethanol from an ethanol plant from corn or wherever, there's an approved process already for converting that into SAFs. Right now, some SAFs are being blended into petroleum-based jet fuel. Is the plan to initially have mixtures of these and then completely convert to SAFs or what's kind of the process there? The idea would be to initially blend in SAFs, but then increase that number over time. One of the hot button issues within this field is what governments might do push this along and encourage this development. And one of the things that the European Union anyway is considering doing is setting mandates for blending. So there's a proposed rule in Europe right now that suggests that we'll start by blending in, say, 2% SAFs. And then over time, over the next dozens of years, we'll push that number higher and higher and higher. The current numbers go up to like 60 something percent, but conceivably that you could go all the way to 100 In terms of how much it costs to produce these SAFs compared to petroleum-based fuel, is there a big difference right now? Is the gap closing there? There still is a big difference. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just issued a report. Pieces of the report dealt with SAFs, and in their analysis, SAFs currently are about three times the cost of fossil fuel jet fuel. I think what the industry folks are hoping is that as they scale up this process, they're going to start getting cheaper and cheaper. They can take advantage of economies of scale of larger production. Is there concern that this cost will be passed down to the consumer in terms of airline tickets and fuel surcharges? That actually hits on another issue, which is what happens, for example, if a low-cost airline says, yeah, this really isn't our business to be doing SAFs. We're not going to play this game. We're just going to give our customers the cheapest flights we can and therefore use fossil fuels. So one issue that politicians and the industry is grappling with is to try to figure out how to make it a level playing field to ensure that all the companies have to do the same thing. So one approach in the EU, like I mentioned, is considering mandates. That's not really a favored approach in the United States. So in the United States, politicians are, and the industry are considering much more closely building in incentives, say, for fuel producers, tax credits for fuel producers to make fuels. If they do make a gallon of SAFs in the U.S., then you might get buck 25 or buck 75, buck 50 tax credit back to you. Those kinds of things are on the table. None of those have been passed yet. A little bit is hung up in the Biden administration's Build Back Better initiatives that are kind of stalled out in Congress right now, but there's a lot of hope for some of that legislation. It seems exciting that there's so many different kinds of technologies and feedstocks that are being used for SAFs. Does it seem like this time around people are a lot more hopeful that this will reach scale and become widely used? I would say there's a lot of excitement in the industry, but in the research community, I think there's guarded optimism because they've been through this. They've seen this. The chemists and the chemical engineers have had sort of promised these advances in the first go around and they fell short. And it wasn't for the fault of the technology. Anytime you're talking about energy on a societal scale, invariably policy and therefore politics gets brought into it because 
the energy industry is so massive. So I think if the policymakers can find a way to support the industry, to level the playing field, and to encourage flyers to back this, then I think that's got a real shot. If it doesn't get policy backing, it's going to be an uphill climb or an uphill flight, I suppose. That's a, that's a mixed metaphor right there. <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much, Bob. You're welcome. Thanks, Megan. Bob Service is a staff writer at Science. You can find a link to his story at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Natalie Seddon. We talk about nature-based solutions to climate change, why they're catching on, and the need to be cautious that they aren't turned into greenwashing. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Natural solutions or nature-based solutions to big problems, they sound good, but we need the right implementation to really sustain these interventions, and they can't be used in place of cutting way back on fossil fuels. Natalie Seddon wrote a review in this week's special issue on climate change about the benefits and limits of nature-based solutions. Hi, Natalie. Hi. I do think that these all sound really good. I would much rather work with the planet, work with what we have here. And I think a lot of people are probably familiar with nature-based solutions to climate change in terms of carbon offsets, planting some bamboo for each airplane flight that you take. But is there kind of a general definition we should keep in mind during our discussion? Actually, it's funny you mentioned offsets there because I would keep that well away from the definition of a nature-based solution. Nature-based solutions reflect the multiple values of working with nature in general and perhaps in a warming world in particular. Put simply, they involve the protection, the, the restoration, the sustainable management of all our ecosystems. So not just forests, but our wetlands, our kelp forests, our reefs. And working with them so they support biodiversity so that those ecosystems can be really resilient and adaptive in a rapidly warming world. It gives us a leg up starting materials. It's already doing a lot of this work. Can we help it and take advantage of it? Absolutely. Nature is already doing so many things for us and has done for countless millennia. And many of the problems we face in the world is because we have ignored that value. We've taken that value for granted. Or we've not included that value in, in our economic decision making. And it's payback time. We need to repay the debt we owe to nature in order to protect it, restore it and work with it. And we need to work critically. We need to work with indigenous peoples and local communities, you know, who have land rights and they have incredible knowledge in many cases of how best to work with nature in a warming world. We have a lot to learn from them. I mean, in the global north, which is getting increasingly impacted by climate change, we've got a lot, a lot to learn from lower income countries that have really been and continue to be at the front line of climate change, you know, they've been working with nature to try and deal with the harsh impacts. Why are we hearing so much more about nature-based solutions these days? 
the term was first coined way back in sort of 2008 by the World Bank. But as you said, it's only really in the last two or three years that we've seen it gain such traction and global policy on business agendas as part of net zero plans and also increasing in the research community. And I think there are various reasons for this. The concept brings together within a single framework lots of other green concepts green and blue infrastructure, ecosystem-based adaptation, ecosystem-based disaster risk reduction, and all these things. And what Nature-Based Solutions as a concept does is it brings it all together. And rather than sort of highlighting one particular benefit of working with nature, like mitigation of climate change or adaptation to climate change, it basically reflects the fact that if you work with nature in the right way, you can get multiple benefits. Because if you just focus on one thing, like carbon, you end up with cheap offsets, which are actually doing far more harm than good in the world. Whereas if you try and focus on the multiple benefits, supporting adaptation, supporting biodiversity, then you're not going to get those sort of perverse outcomes or those trade-offs. Should nature-based solutions replace other interventions, other approaches to reducing climate change? We need to do everything we can. There are technological solutions, there are behavioral solutions, and there are nature-based solutions. And we need all of the above. In certain situations, technology is going to be the best approach. In other situations, nature-based solutions are going to be the most beneficial or cost-effective approach. And in many contexts, you need these sort of hybrid approaches that blend technology and nature. But underpinning all of it, we need behavioral change. We need systemic change in the way we run our economies, what we eat and what we consume. Because unless we do that, the technological and nature-based solutions won't be enough. But there's lots of important detail about what types of solutions to implement, when and where. And that's important information because a lot of the technology that we will ultimately almost certainly need is nowhere near ready to go to scale, whereas nature-based are ready to go to scale. They're working right now and, and you know, <laughs> if we treat them better, they can provide many other benefits. But by the end of the century, we are going to need technology as well, but we're not there yet with the tech. So this sort of reliance on tech to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or technology to protect us along our coastlines and things. I mean, some of that just isn't... Not ready for prime time. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some examples here. This is an example of where things worked out and where things didn't work out so great. Let's start with Bolivia. And let's compare that with uh, lowland tropical forests in Cambodia. One of the fundamentally important things about the Bolivian example is that this is a project that has been run by, implemented by indigenous people who had land rights recognized. And that's like the number one thing that needs to be in place for a nature-based solution to be ethical and sustainable and ultimately successful. So this was a, a project where all sorts of different interventions were carried out. So forest protection, forest management, agroforestry, so different sorts of nature-based solutions on these lands. And these interventions are projected to avoid quite a lot of CO2 emissions, providing benefits for climate change mitigation. But they also, the communities are reporting reduced slope erosion, for example. In other words, you know, that's a good way of dealing with some of the impacts of climate change. And then it was also good for biodiversity. So it provided habitat for a large number of important endemic endangered species and supported livelihoods. So it sort of ticks all the boxes in what it delivered. And it also ticks the boxes in how it was implemented because the how things are implemented is a fundamental importance to the success of the project. I'm not familiar with this agroforestry term. What does that mean? That means growing crops among trees or trees among crops. 
or having animals among trees, so silver pastures. And that is a good thing to do because it can increase carbon sequestration, but it can also increase the fertility of the soil, provide shade, increase the soil moisture content. You can enhance or at least stabilize yields by establishing agroforestry. And this is evidence of this in across sub-Saharan Africa, where people have been implementing agroforestry for a long time. There's more studies now showing that actually agroforestry in European agricultural systems is also a good idea. But there's still a lot of work to be done on the hows and the wares and the which species and all these sort of critical questions. There's still a lot more science to be done, but it is important. And what happens on our agricultural landscapes is critically important to how we tackle the impacts of climate change and cooling and some of the biggest mitigation potential does actually come from those agricultural lands as well. Let's go over to the other side of this chart that you've put together. This is an intervention that took place in Cambodia in lowland tropical forest. So this is a project that was kind of established in the name of fighting climate change. And, and some of these really bad projects are just that. It was an area of around 34,000 hectares that was granted by the government to a company and they removed the old growth forest that was very rich in carbon and very biodiverse and replaced it with a non-native species, just a single species. It was a monoculture of acacia. So it went from a very diverse forest to a monoculture. So low diversity, low resilience, very bad for biodiversity. But this is particularly bad for people because actually this so-called wildlife sanctuary, the establishment of it was very top down and it involved evicting the local indigenous people. Now, those local indigenous people played a critical role in patrolling the forest and stopping illegal deforestation. So not only did you have this area destroyed from the acacia monoculture in the name of climate change, but actually in the other areas around there, the illegal deforestation went up because the local indigenous people were no longer there. You can really see the cascade. Yeah. yeah. So it had negative outcomes for people, negative outcomes for biodiversity, negative outcomes for climate change mitigation. And there are lots of these around the world. And we, this is absolutely has to be avoided at all costs. How do we prioritize which nature-based solutions to take on? At a global level, the most important, most critical thing we need to do is protect our intact ecosystems, whether that's peatlands, grasslands, old growth tropical forests. We need to protect it for many reasons, not least of which we need to keep the carbon that's locked in it. It's a critical part of meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement is to keep the carbon, that carbon locked up in the biosphere. The problem is, is that quite a lot of the funding and the policy around all this is actually favouring sort of reforestation or afforestation, which is even worse. Reforestation is a good idea. That means putting trees back where trees naturally occur. Afforestation involves putting trees where trees don't naturally occur, including ancient grasslands and peatlands and so on. And that's a really bad thing to do, not only because the carbon benefits aren't there, but also because, you know, you're actually damaging biodiversity, compromising human and natural adaptation to climate change and all sorts of things. So the most important thing to do is maintain the carbon in, the, in those, those ecosystems. Where does biodiversity, which comes up a lot in this piece, fit into nature-based solutions? Critical part of, you know, the definition of a good nature-based solution is that it supports biodiversity the diversity of life from the level of the gene to the level of the ecosystem is that which secures the flow of all the benefits that we get from the natural world. You know, it's not like a nice to have. It's not like, oh, no, we like elephants, so we'll save them. There's a lot of confusion about this term biodiversity, isn't there? And then people sort of think maybe it's a luxury that we don't have resources to preserve. What biodiversity really is, is a property of the natural world that is essential if we want clean water and food security and disaster risk reduction, you know, all that the health of the ecosystem is linked to its biodiversity. 
you know, only can we get these services from nature or can nature provide these benefits if it's healthy, so if it's biodiverse. And so good nature-based solutions will support or enhance biodiversity. In a warming world, we need that biodiversity because the more species we have, the more habitats we have, then the more likely it is that that ecosystem will be functioning in radically different future conditions, whether that's extreme drought or more fire prone or flooding or whatever it is. The more species, the more, more options we have. What do you see as the next steps here to get nature-based solutions in place, but in the proper ways? Well, we do need companies and governments and other organizations that have pledged to invest in nature-based solutions to ensure that they invest in high integrity projects that meet these properties that we've been discussing, biodiversity, reflectors, supported, led by, or in close partnership with local communities, those sorts of things. We have to make sure that the the funding flows to the the projects that need it most in the form that's most suitable to the the social and political context. You can't just throw money at a landscape and and expect that it to be restored and looked after in an appropriate way. So there's a lot of of work to be done about sort of forms of finance that are suitable. We've also got to ensure that those who are investing in nature-based solutions are not doing it instead of doing everything they possibly can to decarbonize all their operations. Because unless we keep fossil fuels in the ground, the heating that will result will turn our ecosystems, will turn nature into a net source of greenhouse gas emissions rather than the net sink it presently is. So I start the article and I talk about how basically nature-based solutions was included in the text of the Glasgow Climate Pact, sort of three days before the end. But in the final hours of the negotiations, those words were removed. And partly this reflected, you know, concerns that became very evident at COP26 that some nations, indigenous peoples and local community groups, some grassroots organisations have have really big issues with the term or in, in the way the term is being used in greenwashing by some of the big polluters and the governments that subsidise them. And nature-based solutions were in in all but name. But I think it's important that we get the term nature-based solutions in the decision text arising from these multilateral processes. So we're hoping that, you know, COP27, it can be in there because we have now got an internationally agreed definition of a nature-based solution. We've got robust science-based guidelines on what good looks like when it comes to nature-based solution. You know, and if it's in these documents, that gives parties oversight of the implementation of these of these sorts of solutions. And so I think it's important not to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. All right. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thanks very much. Natalie Seddon is a professor of biodiversity in the Department of Biology at the University of Oxford and the director of the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative. Don't miss the next in our series on books exploring the science of food and agriculture. This month, host Angela Saini talks with indigenous environmental scientist Jessica Hernandez about her new book, Fresh Banana Leaves. Hi there, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and host of this special series of podcasts in which I interview the authors of new and important books on food and agriculture. We've reached the second episode, and this month I'm joined by Jessica Hernandez, an environmental scientist with Indigenous heritage in Mexico and El Salvador. In her new book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Hernandez explores the failures of Western science when it comes to conservation and land management. 
One of the principles of her community is that nature protects us as long as we protect nature. In her research, Hernandez explores how land and food supplies might look if nations didn't take such a utilitarian approach to nature and instead thought about what humans might offer nature in return. Jessica, first of all, this is such a rich and challenging story that you tell in your book. Could you start, though, by just telling me a little bit more about your background and how that's informed the work that you do? Part of my background is as a displaced indigenous woman. So I come from the Maya Chorti nation that's actually located through three borders, one of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And I come from the Salvadorian side. And I also come from the Zapotec nation that's located in Oaxaca. And I think that oftentimes when we talk about indigeneity or indigenous knowledge, we tend to ignore indigeneity or indigenous knowledges that come from displaced indigenous peoples. And I think that given how stellar colonialism and climate change is continuing to displace many indigenous peoples, especially from the global south, that kind of formulates my knowledge and experience as a climate scientist and environmental scientist and how I view the work that I do today. So this is your family heritage that you're describing. Where did you grow up and how did you get into science in the first place? So I grew up in in between, I feel like, two countries. So I grew up in Los Angeles and I grew up visiting my maternal lands in Oaxaca, Mexico. It gave me a different perspective because when I would go home, right, we didn't have certain resources like running water. We didn't have the same house infrastructure that we had in the city, Los Angeles. So I think that as a result of that, being kind of raised into different roles in two different environments allow me to see even our environments in Los Angeles differently, especially as a young girl. In cities, we have large buildings, but sometimes we tend to forget to look at the flowers, to look at the trees. City life tends to be really fast-paced in comparison to, you know, more of the Oaxaca Pueblo lifestyle that's more slow, that you wake up when the roosters start singing. It was an interesting duality in my upbringing. One of the challenging things that you write in your book is that in Western science, ecology and biology are often regarded as separate things, but that as an indigenous person, you see them very much as part of one almost holistic system. Yeah, so I think that in Western sciences, and I think that ties back to the Western thought, where we tend to compartmentalize many different ways of knowing into boxes. So if we want to learn more about the skeleton system or the biological processes, we study biology. When we want to learn more about the ecosystems that surround the living organism, we study ecology. As opposed to indigenous science, where we look at all the interconnections, we look at the living organism that's a part of the entire landscape versus Western sciences, we tend to focus on one or two puzzle pieces. Like you were trying to protect the salmon, we forget to look at the water quality, we forget to look at climate change impacts, and we're just focusing on the salmon. The theme of this series is food and agriculture. And of course, food supplies are hugely affected by extreme weather events as a result of climate change. And in your book, you describe one example, heavy rains in Oaxaca, Mexico in 2020, which affected the crops there, particularly corn crops. What I found incredible reading was that local indigenous communities, the damage for them seemed to go far beyond just the loss of harvest or the loss of food. It almost felt like an, you write, ecological grief. How does that feel? 
So I think that ecological grief feels similar to losing a relative, losing an uncle or an aunt. That kind of demonstrates the kinships, right? The relationships that we also foster with our plant and animal relatives. We talk to our plants. We're taught to do ceremonies, prayers, songs to those plants that are going to nourish us. Ecological grief is something that, like this depression or grief that overshadows, you know, even looking at the food scarcity that our communities are not facing because of this kind of puts a blanket over our communities, especially our elders and our young. And how does that relationship then change the way farming is done? Farming is done more intentional, where Western agriculture, where we just plant things to just grow in monocultural processes. Our creation stories tell us that our gods and goddesses created us from those natural elements, from those native plants, from those native animals. We see them as part of us and we are part of them. So I think that's more of a reciprocal relationship where we just don't plan to extract. We take care of the plant, we water it and we nourish it as well as it will eventually do to us. And one of the things you describe is the number of different corn varieties that there are. Is that part of this way of thinking about the land? So I think that because we see food as part of our living existence, so we take care and steward those different species. Our communities are still fighting to make sure that genetically modified seeds are not introduced because their other corn species eventually die off because that genetically modified is is meant to overcompete. So I think that will be one example of how we're able to sustain that biodiversity in our corn, even though that's a scientific solution, right, for food insecurity is to use genetically modified crops. Just coming back to what you just said, this kind of long-standing intimacy with the land almost and what's grown on it does also contribute to sustainability. Do you feel that modern-day scientists are now looking to these systems, these ideas, and understanding that perhaps we can build a more sustainable system through it. In this time period, there's acknowledgement. So we're seeing more acknowledgement of indigenous sciences or indigenous ways of knowing or how they practice agriculture will support us, especially when doing climate change mitigation or adaptation efforts. But I think that they don't know how to go beyond just acknowledging and taking actions. We're seeing that with the IPCC report where they're like, oh, indigenous science will actually help us combat climate change. But because, you know, it's in the first stages, There's long ways to go and to foster them and keep them accountable for taking those actions to go beyond acknowledgement and especially for more holistic, sustainable solutions. How is that for you then as a scientist working alongside Western scientists in this scheme of thinking? What kind of resistance have you faced or has, has it become easier for you? I think there's a lot of resistance because oftentimes they don't see Indigenous sciences our indigenous knowledge as a science. And that's because our indigenous ways of knowing do not follow the scientific method. We don't collect numerical data that can be processed and draw conclusions in the scientific spectrum. So there's been pushback, especially as I started going into higher academia, higher levels of environmental sciences, reaching those circles that have more power and privilege. People sometimes like to acknowledge things, but they don't want to take action because they feel like that's leveraging some of the power and privilege that they have, especially as scientists who have benefited from, you know, studying Indigenous communities or Indigenous relationships. Hopefully that's where we're going to see change, but there's going to be a lot of resistance, right? Because people are always resistant to changes, (laughs) especially nowadays. Well, certainly that's something as a science journalist that I've seen that sometimes there are, it almost feels like a cultural impasse that 
it's a failure to even be able to understand or put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. So in the sciences, we're trained to know the answers. And if we don't know the answers to develop an experiment without taking into account the communities that were probably living in that environment before we decided that we were curious about that certain environment. And I think that as scientists, we are taught to know it all or to seek those answers to the questions that we don't know. Oftentimes for us to acknowledge that we don't know something or that we need to be vulnerable and put ourselves in other shoes, that vulnerability is translated to failing as a scientist. That's why it requires us to unlearn and relearn, especially how we practice science, because that's something that we continue to teach, especially our young scientists. We don't have an answer to a question, develop an experiment, but do not include the community that probably has the answer already because they have lived there for generations. That's where we come into clashing with what it requires to be an expert and how Indigenous communities view expertise as something that is not attainable because, you know, we're still constantly learning even as we grow older. I mean, this touches a little bit on the next question that I had for you, which is that a lot of your book looks at the devastating legacy of colonialism and also the radical potential of decolonization going forward. How do you think this could shape the future of food and our relationship with it? When we talk about decolonization, especially with food systems, it's important to keep in mind that for Indigenous peoples, we have holistic, sustainable agricultural systems that do not rely on monocultures. We kind of steward ecosystems that can nourish us for months, that can provide a protein, that can also provide other plants, different food sources. And I think that we're monocultural because we're focusing more on planting 300 potatoes as opposed to planting more of a diverse environment or agricultural system. We're seeing how there's food scarcity. You don't get all your nutrition from just potatoes. Hopefully with decolonization, especially allowing indigenous peoples to steward and manage their lands, own the land, the land is going to you know, be something that we own. We're going to see how there's more holistic agricultural systems implemented and how we're going to move away from that monocultural agricultural systems that have governed our global economies to this day. For those listening for whom decolonization might be a new or slightly alien term, how do you define it? For me, I define decolonization as peeling layers that have been embedded in our societies due to settler colonialism. It's important to acknowledge that settler colonialism has created many layers. So I often view it as like peeling onion layers because, you know, there is going to be that sadness, right? The healing process, that discomfort, those emotions that we experience when we're peeling onions, especially when they make us cry. Undoing those systems, those layers that have been embedded because of colonization and what is now known as settler colonialism, right? Because it's the ongoing systems that are byproducts of colonization, especially colonization of the Americas. Finally, one of the things that you write is that 80% of the world's biodiversity is sustained by indigenous peoples. But these are also people who are fighting for their rights even now. Can you explain how difficult that situation is for people, particularly, you know, from your family background in Latin America? On top of that 80% being stewarded by indigenous peoples, 50% of our world's biodiversity is located in Latin America. So I think that constantly when we talk about knowledge systems, especially knowing that there is this global self-knowledge that's still being excluded from these dominant discourses because only the global North has that privilege to be, you know, the knowledges and voices to be heard. We are forgetting to acknowledge that there's a constant struggle because our people, especially south of the border, are managing and stewarding 50% of the world's biodiversity. 
Oftentimes, when we look at extractive energy resources, even when we're looking at renewable energy, a lot of the lithium mining comes from the global south, where we have most of our biodiversity. So I think it's questioning more even what we consider climate change solutions because they're actually impacting indigenous communities. Many of our people, especially from the global south in Latin America, had to sacrifice their lives in order for them to continue advocating for the protection of our environment, for our landscapes. And we see how that leadership is done by our women, indigenous women. And yet mainstream environmentalism is the men who are given most of that, the publicity, when it's our women who are leading those efforts and it's our women who end up being killed or disappear because they're these outspoken leaders, especially for our Mother Earth. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me here. From me, Angela Saini, that's all until next month when I'll be speaking to T. Colin Campbell, author of The Future of Nutrition. See you then. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Special thanks to our summer intern, Kafia Chowdhury. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.